Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, chapter 16, verses 1 to 13, and chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It shall be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered from multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. When Abram was ninety-nine years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know if I had to pick the most uncomfortable passages of Scripture to read. Uh, that would definitely be on the list. And you may be wondering, what does that passage of Scripture have to do with the resurrection? Uh, well, that's what we're going to see today. Uh, if, you, if you've been with us, you know that we've been in a series called The Resurrection. It's a series that focuses uh, on Paul's statements, actually in 1 Corinthians 15, that if the resurrection did not take place, then all of his preaching, all of my preaching, and your faith is useless. It's futile. And so what we've done over the last two weeks is that we have been making the case that the resurrection actually did occur, that Jesus is who he says he is, and as a result, there is hope in the resurrection. 
But with that foundation in place, right, the foundation, uh, the assumption that the resurrection of Jesus, the literal resurrection of Jesus actually took place, I want to now begin to shift to see how the resurrection impacts our understanding of real life, real time issues. And today in particular, we're going to see how the resurrection impacts real life issues like sexism, racism, and bigotry. Now, much like sickness and death, injustices like sexism, racism, and bigotry, they will always be with us on this side of Christ's return. But just as the resurrection offers us hope in the midst of the ever-present reality of sickness and death, the resurrection also offers us hope in the midst of the ever-present injustices of our day, injustices like sexism, racism, and bigotry. And what we're going to see is that the resurrection then motivates us to resist such evil wherever it might exist. And so to try to understand how this all relates to the resurrection, I want to look at the very concrete example from Scripture that I think sheds light on our own issues of sexism, racism, and bigotry today. And most importantly, why there is hope because Jesus rose from the dead. And so I want to look at this story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar And I want to understand it from three different perspectives. I want want us to see that this story is a story of injustice, that it's a story of reflection, and that it's also a story of resurrection hope. Let me show you what I mean. First, story of injustice. Uh, We need to understand the context of the story. There's a lot going on. Uh, we need to understand its full context to see the gravity of the injustices taking place here. Uh, if, you, if you know the story, uh, back in Genesis 12, right, God promised that he would make Abraham, who at this point was called Abram, uh, he was going to make him into a great nation, and that through that nation, all the nations of the world would be blessed. But what we quickly begin to see immediately after Genesis 12, is that Abraham did not trust the promises of God. He hears about this greatness, this great nation that he is to become that's promised to him, but he ignores that this greatness is rooted in God's timing and God's plan alone. And as a result of his lack of trust that the Lord would actually accomplish this work, we see this superiority complex develop in him, a complex that would lead to grave injustices. Uh, Let me show you what I mean. So after being called by God, uh, Abraham ends up in Egypt. Now, Sarah, who at this point is called Sarai, uh, is uh, Abraham's wife. And by all accounts, uh, Scripture tells us that she was a beautiful woman. And Abraham was nervous that the Egyptians might kill him in order to have her. And so he tells his wife to pretend that she's his sister so that they don't kill him. And let me read for you a little bit of what the result is in Genesis 12. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle and male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. Okay, so to summarize what you just heard, in his aspirations of greatness, Abraham lies, and he allows his wife to be taken into the harem of the Egyptians. 
in order that he might acquire the kind of wealth needed to build a nation. I mean, just consider all that he was given. He was given cattle and servants and all kinds of other things. So the things needed to build a nation he was given because of this lie. Now, we don't exactly know uh, what it means that Sarah was taken into the palace of Pharaoh. Uh, I'll just say from this point on, nothing graphic is going to be happening, but there's some really um, intense themes. So if you've got children, especially if you're online, if you've got children in the room, just heads up. Um, This is an intense uh, portion of scripture. But when she was taken into the palace, what could that mean? It could mean a few things. Number one, there are some who suggest that she was taken into Pharaoh's harem, and given the nature of Pharaoh's aggressiveness, which we've already seen in in that passage, she very well could have been raped by him. But there's also some indication that God did not allow that injustice to be inflicted on her, because what we see is that later uh, a disease strikes Pharaoh and his family, which causes him to release Sarah. Uh, What we do know is that as a result of all this, though, Abraham had put his wife in danger by lying. And now, as a result of all this, they get kicked out of Egypt. And they're sent off with everything that he had acquired. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Despite Abraham's wickedness and deceit and self-glorifying selfishness and self-preservation, God remains faithful to him. And in Genesis 15, he promises to give Abraham and Sarah a child. Now, in this time, especially for Sarah, the pain of not having a child of her own was nearly unbearable. In this culture, a child is validation for a woman. Without a child, her life is marked by daily and profound shame. But at this point, they are well into old age. And so it seems impossible, and so she becomes desperate for a child especially considering that she's married to a man who's willing to sell her off for some cattle and some servants. She has this sense of desperation. She needs validation. And so a plan is devised. Now, if you remember Abraham's MO so far, is that Abraham has already tended to hear the promises of God, develop a superiority complex uh, that leads to this sense of entitlement and wickedness, And instead of trusting God's promises, he attempts, best he can, to make it happen himself. And so the the plan that is devised here is that Abraham would rape Sarah's Egyptian slave, Hagar. Now, some might wonder why often, whenever we talk about these kinds of scenarios, I, I do tend to use the word rape in these situations. And the reason why I do is it's very intentional. It's a simple fact that non-consensual, power-ridden, forced sex is rape. She is an enslaved woman being forced to have sex with her enslaver. And so what we have now, of course, is she becomes pregnant as a result of this assault. As a result of this pregnancy, she now resents and despises Sarah for subjecting her to this, for supporting it. And this resentment burns uh, within her, And as a result of her anger, Sarah then is angered, and so she complains to Abraham that her uh, her, um, servant is not uh, treating her well, and Abraham basically just like shrugs his shoulders and says, Sarah, do whatever you want to her then, and Sarah does. And she mistreats Hagar until Hagar is forced to run. Now, I said uh, this is an interesting story, 
Uh, and it's an interesting story because, let's get back to kind of the main topic that we're looking at here, it actually interweaves sexism, racism, and bigotry. How? Well, first, there's, you know, obvious sexism happening here on the part of Abraham, who's willing to marginalize degrade, and degrade women as a result of his superiority complex, right? He's done it to his wife, Sarah, who herself was a victim in Egypt. And now, as a result, he victimizes uh, another. And as a result of uh, uh, Sarah's victimization, she now becomes the victimizer. They together now traumatize this, this woman, Hagar. But the second uh, thing that we see here is not only do we see this obvious sexism, but in the passage, we're also reminded several times that Hagar is Egyptian, That point is made first to tell you that Hagar was acquired by Abraham as a result of the injustices in Egypt. Remember, he was given many servants, and she was one of them. So injustice begets injustice here. But we're also being reminded that Hagar is Egyptian because it's pointing out that she's from a different people. She is Egyptian. And that difference makes it easier for them to treat her this way. This might be uh, different than the expressions of racism and bigotry that we see today, but the fact of the matter is at the heart of it, they treated Hagar the way they did because they felt superior to her. She was of a different people. I mean, at the heart of racism and bigotry is the same conception of superiority, superiority that justifies the maltreatment of those deemed different. This story is a story full of, of injustices, and full of assumptions of superiority. And I note this superiority because it's important for us to see what drove them to this point, right? This superiority was ultimately a rejection of God's purposes, of God's intention. And what was God's intention? Well, I uh, included Genesis chapter 1 in there, which may have seemed a little Uh, disconnected, but it it speaks much to where things went wrong here. In Genesis 21, verse 27, we see that in God's mind, God's creative purposes was to create humans in his image, and as a result, give them inherent dignity and value and worth, because as image bearers, we reflect him. And that alone ought to eliminate all assumptions of superiority, because we are all equal in value in this sense to our creator. We have all been made in his image. But the second thing is that within the story, the assumptions of superiority are rooted in a belief that God has blessed me in such a way, this is, you know, Abraham would be thinking this, God has blessed me in such a way that I can treat people as less than. I mean, this is why the story is not just a story of injustice, because if we think about that idea of feeling as though we are superior and as a result can treat people as less than. This isn't just a story of, of, of uh, time past. It's also a story that very much reflects us today. It's a mirror. These assumptions of superiority are showing us our own um, assumptions of superiority. And so let's look at that. It's not just a story of injustice. It's also a story of reflection. Uh, I need to start by considering why. Uh, such stories are in the Bible. And in particular, stories that center people like Abraham, a man known 
Uh, there are many who look at a story like this, uh, especially the common practice uh, of the day where men took multiple wives or men dominated women. <clears throat> and many use those kinds of stories as a way to discredit and question the morality of the Bible. But here's the problem with doing that. It's twofold. Number one is first we need to understand why the Bible tells these stories. It's disturbing, for sure, to read in Genesis how the fathers of the faith, and all of them, all of them, treated women horribly. It's striking, and it does seem to give us pause, and it should, I think for some, mean that we should discredit the morality of the Bible. However, here's what we need to see. that Though the practices of polygamy uh, were culturally normal, though, though this treatment of women was normal, the Old Testament is actually constantly showing how devastating such practices were, especially to women. Uh, if you want to read more about this, Robert Al- especially to women. Uh, if you want to read more about this, Robert Alter, who's a Jewish scholar, draws a lot of this out, where time and time again, the Bible shows the extent to which such practices, which God never condones, leads to absolute mayhem and wreaks havoc. I mean, the Bible is actually condemning such practices. It's describing what took place. It's never prescribing what should take place. And one of the things that Robert Alter draws out is that anyone who reads the Old Testament and thinks the Bible is in some way condoning such practices doesn't know how to read because it's clear how devastating such wickedness is. The actions of these men and women should produce this righteous indignation in us. These actions are in the Bible to show exactly how wicked they are. But the second thing, and more to the point, it's important for us to see these stories not as something that happened long ago, but as a mirror to ourselves. I mean, the hard truth is that the attitudes that produced such wickedness then still exist now. The sexism, racism, and bigotry rooted in assumptions of superiority that leads to actions of degradation still persist. And the story of Pharaoh and Abraham and Sarah and Hagar seem like extreme examples, and maybe they are. But it is not a story that we can disassociate from because we still harbor much of the same wickedness in our hearts today. Consider sexism. The lust of Pharaoh that leads him to take Sarah as some kind of trophy or object of pleasure is the same lust that drives modern sex trafficking in the porn industry today. The sexual exploitation of Hagar by Abraham for his own gain is at the core of the same manipulation that takes place every day in hookup culture or in other pursuits of sexual conquest. The same assumptions of superiority that caused the injustices of Genesis 16 are the same assumptions that lead to misogynistic comments and attitudes usually directed at women on the street or in the workplace or on Twitter and Facebook or even just in the mind. It's at the root the same assumption of superiority. And just as a side note, ultimately sexism is an issue for men and women, but let's be, let's be real. You cannot address issues of sexism without directly talking to men. Men, the core issue of condescending, sarcastic, misogynistic, sexual, and sexist attitudes and actions toward women 
today are the same, at their core, the same issues that Abraham possessed. It's an assumption of superiority that when left unchecked will lead to forms of injustice. We've said this before, but the good gift of strength, as an example, is given to men by God in his good design to use for protection and service. And yet too often, that good gift is instead used for manipulation and intimidation and injustice. Because many of us still possess the heart of Abraham. We take a good gift of God and we use it for our own gain. God root that out of us. Consider racism and bigotry. The core issues of Abraham and also Sarah justified the dehumanization and degradation of Hagar because she was different and of a different people. That same core issue still persists today. I mean, just as an example, we have seen this in recent days more and more, the degrading statements and treatments of immigrants and migrants at the border. Now, I know immigration is a complex issue and there's no great solutions to it, and so I'm not going to presume that I have any great insight into it. But what I can say for sure is that the lack of compassion, the harsh rhetoric, and the fear-mongering often used is rooted in the same willingness to degrade fellow image bearers, to justify dehumanization through constant fear-mongering. Dehumanization that happens every day on cable news outlets and on social media and around kitchen tables. Another, one of the core issues of Abraham, um, or one of, another example, rather, of how this can often play out. Abraham, again, at his core, felt superior, and as a result, dehumanizes, looks down on other people, and there are many, even Christians, of course, who use dehumanizing, or have dehumanizing attitudes and use dehumanizing language against those of other religions, those in the LGBTQIA community, those of a different political ideology. I mean, one can differ in opinion about religion or sexuality and politics without the degradation and the dehumanization marked by superiority complexes that somehow attempt to justify such actions and behavior. At their core, they're the same issue that Abraham had. And I could go on and on about issues of race or the rise of anti-Semitism or the rise in anti-Asian sentiments, the assumptions of superiority in our culture or our national identity. But the point being that the same superiority complex of Abraham that leads to the rejection of the Imago Dei, the uh, image of God in both Sarah and Hagar is the same that we often still possess today. And like death and sick, uh, sickness, sexism, racism, and bigotry, they have persisted and they will continue to persist because the core issues of humanity never change. But here's the thing. The story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, it's not just a story of injustice. It's not just a story that is reflective of our own issues. But I also want us to see that it's also a story of hope. That there's actually resurrection hope in this very jarring story. Let's see that hope. You know, there's hope for abusers like Abraham, as we'll see. He needs it. There's hope for the abused like Hagar. And there's hope for those who seem to be in a, a mixture of both, like Sarah, being both the abuser and the abused. 
I mean, with the abuser, consider the position of the abusers before God. Especially, let's look at Abraham. I mean, Abraham is a man who's lied, who's allowed for and uh, has participated in sex abuse, and has otherized people so that he can treat them inhumanely. He places himself, as a result, squarely in the sights of God's judgment. How do I know that? Well, two chapters after the story, and I, I don't have it up, but just trust me, two chapters after the story, you have the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if you know that story, God brought judgment against those cities. And while there's a lot of debate on the very specific uh, reasons why God destroyed those cities, what is not debatable is that there were at least, they were at least destroyed because as a culture, they had embodied the same wickedness of Abraham with forced sex, violence against outsiders, and an obsession with selfish gain. In in, uh, Ezekiel, when he was speaking of that destruction, he said that they were overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before God. God takes seriously injustice and the idolatry of dehumanization. The same sexism and racism and bigotry then... uh, then and now, both demand the judgment and justice of God. And the reason why I draw Sodom and Gomorrah is that the same fire that rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah is the same fire that should rain down on those who continue the injustices of dehumanization, including Abraham. Because it's all rooted in these conceptions of superiority. So what hope then is there for those who perpetuate such things? And I think, if many are honest, to varying degrees, we perpetuate, we all perpetuate such things. Why God, why has God, why did God not crush Abraham as he deserved? Why, even now, has God not crushed us as we've deserved? Well, for that, the answer to that question, I want to take a look at chapter 17, starting in in verse 1. And actually, if you want to put that up, guys, it might be helpful for people to follow along, but let me read that for us. Follow, follow me for a moment. All right, I'm going to give you a, a quick kind of biblical theology of some things, so I need you to follow with me for a second. In verse 1, when Abraham says this, when Abraham was uh, 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I am God Almighty. Let me stop there for a second. Uh, at the beginning of the covenant, God manifested himself as Jehovah, who was the covenant God. But here, God reveals himself as El Shaddai. That's, that is the Hebrew for I am God Almighty. El Shaddai, the God of power, the God of might, God Almighty. This term is used, God uses it for himself when he's referencing salvation. The God of power comes speaking to Abraham in this moment. Let me continue. And God continues uh, on to say, Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Verse 3, then Abram fell on his face. Let me again stop there for a second. So catch it. God is revealing himself as a God of power, a God of salvation to Abraham. And as a result, all Abraham can do is fall face down. Much like today, in those times, this was a sign of extreme reverence, of deference, of humility. Abraham is literally floored by the power of the Almighty God, this God of salvation. 
Then God goes on to say, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Now, fast forward to Romans 4. Guys, if you want to put this up. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is speaking of Abraham in the covenant that God has made with him. Right? So everything that we've just heard about covenant, Paul's referencing it. And in verse 13, this is what Paul says in Romans 4. He said, it was not enough, or I'm sorry, it was not through the law that Abraham in his offering received the promise that he would be heir, to the, uh, heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. He goes on to say in verses, verse 23 that the words, it was credited, credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for those who believe, and here it is, in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. All right, what's happening there? I don't know if you see what Paul is doing, but Paul in Romans 4 is connecting the resurrection to what it is that Abraham, this covenant that Abraham had experienced and heard from God. God kept his promise to Abraham and did not crush him as he deserved. Fire did not rain down on Abraham because... God Almighty, the God of power, the God of salvation, sent his son to take the death that Abraham deserved. And in the resurrection of Jesus, fulfilled the promise that there is righteousness and justification for those who turn from their wickedness and put their faith in the God of salvation. So for those who harbor the same tendencies of dehumanization as Abraham, and frankly, again, it's tendencies that we all possessed from varying degrees, there is hope that we will not be crushed because of these injustices, because of Jesus, our covenant-keeping, all-powerful Savior who rescues us through his death and his resurrection. Now, it's also worth saying that that does not mean that there will not be uh, consequences for injustice now. I mean, if you read the story of Abraham and his family line, there are a lot of consequences because of his injustices. But even in the midst of those consequences, God remained faithful. And he remains faithful because ultimately of the work of the Messiah, Jesus, the one who would come before God. Christ becomes our righteousness if we trust in him, if we are floored by the power of this God, humble ourselves and trust in him. But there's also another person, of course, that's in this passage. Not only is it the abuser that needs hope, but there's also the abused. Right? We have this abused woman, and I guess we can include Sarah as well. These abused women, especially Hagar. What hope is there for an enslaved woman who is forced to flee? Well, I want us to consider, as we close, verse 13. This might be one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I mean, what we've seen up leading up to verse 13 is that Hagar uh, has fled and is in utter despair. And in that despair, an angel of the Lord comes to her and tells her that she will give birth to a son and that that child will be the father of a great people. And he says that God will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Now, many in church history point out that the old, in the Old Testament, when the angel of the Lord comes and people's reaction is to worship, that the authors are actually not describing an angel, but rather 
the nature of the worship is that in those moments, God has come. And so in this passage, many believe that this is a pre-incarnate Christ that has come to her, that Christ came to Hagar. And this matters when you consider the response that Hagar gives. Again, remember, she is a woman. She is an enslaved woman. She is an assault survivor. She is marginalized and abused in every way. And this woman has the the distinct honor of being the first person in the entire Bible to name God. And what does she name him? Look at verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Hagar, the one who has been marginalized in every way, names God as the one who sees her. See, God, the hope for those who have experienced the weight of abuse, experienced the weight of sexism and racism and bigotry, God is a God who sees you. He sees you in your plight. And the resurrection of Jesus shows that the injustices that you have experienced do not get the final word. Instead, Jesus and the liberating power of the cross and resurrection, they get the final word. All injustices will be judged on the cross of Christ and defeated through the power of his resurrection, or they will be judged before the throne of Christ, one or the other. But in the end, they will be dealt with. God sees, and he is the hope for those who trust his resurrection, trust that the forces of evil and darkness will be defeated. So let me close here. I want us to to take this away, that the, the resurrection of Jesus, it reminds us who is truly superior. We are not remotely superior to anyone No matter how different they are, how differently they think, how wrong we think they are about any particular topic, whatever it might be, Jesus alone is superior as our creator, as our judge. And as the resurrected one, he has conquered sin and death. And Christian, this ought to then be a motivator for us to demand better wherever we might be able to. Christians, we are his people Citizens of his kingdom, a kingdom that is ruled by the one who gave his life for his enemies, whose compassion was on those on the margins, those who were were forgotten, those who were abused. We are his people. And so may we be a people that reflect that kind of character of our king. That we might be a people that reflect resurrection power to those in need of it. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you that you see us as an unfaithful, unjust, wicked people. A creation that has rebelled against you and your perfect law. And though that is the case, out of your love and mercy toward us, you do not leave us in that state of rebellion. But rather, you have sent your Son to break through that rebellion You sent your son to take upon himself our wickedness, our injustice, our sexism, our racism, our bigotry. Christ took it upon himself. But Lord, in his resurrection, 
He has proven that he has conquered such things. He's crushed such things. And as a result, we are given new life to see beyond such things. And so, Lord, I pray for those who still harbor those assumptions of superiority, even if just implicitly. God, I pray that your spirit would weed that out of us and that we would be a people that reflect the character of our King. And God, I also pray for those who have felt the weight of sexism and racism and bigotry. God, I pray that you would be their hope as well, that you would give them vision to see beyond the burdens of this unjust, wicked world and give them vision to see the hope that comes through Jesus, the hope that comes to know that all injustices have been dealt with on the cross or one day be dealt with before your throne. Regardless, you're a God who sees. You're not apathetic, but you're present. Encourage us in these things, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.